0: We hope you enjoy this podcast from Light Church Edithburg. To find out more about us, visit lightchurch.co. Most of you, um, as I look across here, most of you probably know who Shane is. Um, I love the fact that Shane takes time to visit country areas. And uh, we appreciate it. And uh, um, I know he puts it in his schedule... Usually about two weeks after this event, I get a date for next year. And uh, uh, just so we can fit it in. And he's usually in much bigger venues. And uh, so it's a privilege to have you here. And um, um, for those who don't know Shane, he's, he's got an interesting background. Um, how long have you been on the road? 17 years? This is my 17. 17? Oh, you only look 18. Yeah. <laughs> 17 years. Got degrees in theology, <laughs> clinical psychology, um, trained under uh, a pastor who had a, had a sort of rabbinic, rabbinic background, would that be, be right? And it's been a blessing to our church. And no doubt he'll talk about his resources, and maybe if you can fill us, make sure you fill us in what, what they go to support, because that's a, a fantastic cause as well. Um, today we're going to have a session. Uh, and then a break just to have a bit of a snack and a refresh, and then another session. So two sessions this morning, and then one tonight at 7 p.m.
1: So let's give Shane a hand as he comes. Thank you, Ah, oh, Good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out and spending your morning with us. Um, you will not uh, regret it. I, I love... Um, I love speaking in big venues, I love doing all kinds of different things, but actually my favorite thing to do is to teach the Bible in the morning where I'm under no pressure to be an evangelist, right, because I'm not a very good one, and, and, and I, get to, um, I get to make assumptions like we're all fully devoted followers of Jesus. Anybody that's going to give a whole morning to study the Bible wants to go places that I can't go on Sunday morning, right, like, so if I, can, if I can do it anywhere not as fun, so this is my, actually my funnest thing to do, now I can't, I, to make a living I have to do all kinds of other things, but but to, to do my favorite thing, you're actually a part of that, and so if this is your first time being a part of what we do, uh, I think this is my fourth year coming to Edithburgh. so um, this is like a normal thing Now I'm just sort of part of, like, like you've sort of accepted me as like uh, like Edithburg family, which is really, really cool. Um, and, and, and I look forward to this. I find you guys refreshing. I find um, I find what you do amazing. And um, and I, I look forward to this this particular day. I'll talk about the, the resources um, a- after the first session and then um, before the second session. So um, I want to open the scriptures to you. Anytime I, I speak, I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central. Um, and particularly for this morning, I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I want you walking away with a, um, a bigger view of of parts of the Bible than that maybe you had before, I want to give us some different thoughts. I, I, I don't want to ever approach the Bible with, I don't want to be wrong. I want to approach the Bible with, I don't want to miss out, because that's two different things, right? If we get too bogged down in what's the exact right thing, we can miss, uh, we can miss some nuance and some beauty and some things going on. So I want to start by, uh, by telling you a story about one of my heroes. Um, it's a guy named Paul. And, um, and we're gonna read one of his letters, but before we read one of his letters, I-, I wanna set up the history of it, okay? So um, so there's a guy named Paul, he's writing a book called Philippians to a church called Phil- in Philippi. Now, Philippi would have been the worst place you could ever imagine to be a Christian. Philippi um, was an honorary Roman colony. Uh, the reason, I could go into lots of details here, the reason for that is is because Um, there was a civil war between Caesar Augustus and, and Brutus and Cassius and Mark Antony and the last battle of that civil war in the Roman Empire happened at Philippi It was called the Battle of Philippi and Caesar Augustus squashed the rebellion He squashed the resistance and he rewarded the military who was faithful to him He rewarded them with land grants in Philippi and absolved them from future military service and so and then he made everybody in Philippi an honorary Roman citizen which Which meant they were guaranteed a living wage based on the excessive taxation of everybody else in the Roman Empire. And that living wage, and this is true, was called the dole. Now, so you've, so it's true. So, so you've, you've got, you've got an honorary Roman colony that Paul goes into. And this is why if you read all of Paul's writings, he's not real big on Philippi as a city. He's like, we were shamefully treated. We, we lived in much conflict. We feared for our life. These, these are the, we despaired to life itself. These are the things he wrote about his time in Philippi. But his time was quite fruitful because this church got started there. Now, that's part of the story. The next part of the story is Paul's on death row. Now, if I, was to, if I was to tell you, you know what, yesterday in Adelaide, I visited a person on death row, right? I realize there's no such thing as death row in Australia, but j- just go with the, with the analogy. If, if I was to say, I went and visited my friend on death row, your natural question would be, what did he do to get there right and so when i say paul's on death row sometimes we quit asking questions that we would normally ask if i was to say hey i visited a person on death row or this was written by a guy on death row we would we would ask normal questions like well how did he get on death row right so paul's on death row and he's, he's going to die. He's absolutely, there's no getting out of this. He's absolutely going to die at, at the hands of Nero. He is writing his letters. So his letters to Philippi and places like that, the prison epistles is what we call them. They're sort of like his last words. They're his last gasp of if I had one last thing to tell you Here's here's what here's what we're on about, right? This is what this is about and Evidently out of all the churches Paul started at the time, at least at the time of writing The people in Philippi were the only people who reached out to him to help him right now remember death row in the Roman Empire No one fed you N- No one clothed you no one gave you blankets your your basic... T- today, in prison in Australia, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be in prison in Australia. But you take prison... Prison in Australia is a spa treatment at Bliss compared to prison in the Roman Empire. You, you, you had to depend on your friends and family to just feed you three times a day to make sure if you were cold you had a blanket and, and so so word gets around that Paul's in prison and the only people to respond to his imprisonment was these people in Philippi and they sent a guy to um, to, to look after him at great peril to himself and so he's writing them thanking them for being a part of his uh, of, of his comfort of, of his um, of his food of his uh, of his blankets of his warmth of of his clothing, things like this. And and in that, he's writing them um, about how to live. Now, the question is, is how did he get on death row? Well, this is where this gets a little interesting. Now, this is stuff I can't do on Sunday morning. You're getting a special quick history lesson where I get to connect some dots here. So Paul is traveling the world telling people about the compassion of Jesus. Now, here's what he did that people didn't like. He said that certain parts of the Bible don't matter, right? Now, we find him heroic for that, right? But in the first century, the Jews in Jerusalem found him a problem. And, 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 and see, when we talk about this, we go, oh, those stupid Jews. Paul was accomplishing something. But think about it. Think about it. If somebody was making claims that certain verses in the Bible don't matter today... I don't think I think we're still in a we would we're not exactly kind to people who do that but 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 Paul who is our sort of our hero of of the Western Church his whole thing was look I know it says don't eat pork but we just we like bacon it, 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 it's it's okay shrimp you know come on it, it, it's it's fine I know it says to circumcise but seriously let's quit circumcising honestly is that really necessary and you can't really grow the Church of Jesus Christ in 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 Italy um, by making 30-year-old men go through a surgical procedure of circumcision. You can't do that. Like, it would, it would, if, if people wanted to join the church and we told them they couldn't join the church unless they got circumcised, it's going to hinder church growth, right? And and, and he actually, he, he he actually says some really out there things about it. In, in, for instance, in the book of Galatians, he says, to the ones amongst you who want to still circumcise, just tell them to cut the whole thing off, right? He just says, just go ahead and castrate everything, right? And, and, and in in, in Greek, it's even funnier than that. In in Greek, he says, "For those, the, the word circumcision in Greek is peritomen, right? So peri, perimeter, a circle, tomen, cut. So to cut a circle, right? That, I don't think I need to get any more details from that, right? So 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 circumcision in, in Greek is peritomen to cut around, right? He, he says, Paul says, to those of to those of you who want to peritomen. Just go ahead and catatomen. So catatomen means to chop to pieces. It's it's actually it's actually more vivid than castration. It's like taking an axe and just chopping it up, right? And so and so Paul is Paul saying, I know it says circumcise, but but let's not. I know it says don't eat bacon, but goodness me, we just love it, you know. Let's eat some bacon and some like don't like Jesus has made all foods clean. Well, how do you? How do you uh, manage that? And and Paul is trying to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ without getting people in the Western world hung up on things that only Jews would understand, right? But guess who's not going to understand that? Jews. So. The Jewish church was run in Jerusalem under Jesus' brother, a guy named James. Now, to be fair to James, James in history is considered the most righteous person who ever lived. Now, consider that Hebrew definition of righteousness has nothing to do with never making a mistake. It has to do with living generously, right? It has to do with waking up every day and making the poor people's lives better. The word righteous in Hebrew is sedak. The word generous in Hebrew is sedaka. okay? So, it's the same word. So, in Jewish history, when he's called the most righteous man who's ever lived, they're simply saying he's the most generous man who's ever lived. One Jewish history book says that James refused to even take a bath because it wasted water that could be given to the thirsty. Okay, so I don't know if that's true or not, but but nonetheless, if that's the kind of folklore that's being spread about you, you're a very generous man. Now, James has a problem with Paul. Now, the reason James has a problem with Paul is because James is leading the church of Jesus Christ where? In Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? Paul doesn't really have much to do with Jerusalem. Paul grew up in a place called Tarsus, which was a port city in the Roman Empire. It was actually a western city. And so Paul, who is Jewish trained, he's not really concerned with Jerusalem. James is running the thing in Jerusalem. Paul is running the thing around Jerusalem. The world and so word gets back to the Jews in Jerusalem that Paul is saying the temple doesn't matter, Moses doesn't matter, and the tradition doesn't matter, and this is a problem because they're telling James we're not going to be with you until you correct him because if Jesus you told us Jesus was about compassion and forgiveness and love and a better way to live but what Paul's saying is Jesus is about abolishing everything that's important to us and that that you got it. If you don't call him in and sit him down and sort him out, then we're gonna have a problem. So James sends word to Paul that you gotta come back and give a defense of your teaching, right? Right? Everybody following me so far? Right, right. So Paul knows Paul knows the hammer's fixing to drop because they're upset. So here's what Paul does. Paul stops by Corinth because Corinth had money, and he takes an offering for the church in Jerusalem so that when he shows up, he's showing up with finance because It softens everything, right? So so Paul's got a little bit of people skills here. So Paul Paul comes in to give a defense for his teaching. And I'm going to summarize this, then I'm going to read the end of the story. James says to Paul, Paul, look, we love you. We honor what you're doing. We honor your intent. But here's the thing, bro. The rumor has it that you're telling everybody everywhere that Moses doesn't matter, the temple doesn't matter, and our rituals don't matter. Now, I get what you're doing in Greece, but in Jerusalem, there are some people who are very zealous for the scriptures. And so we need you to sort this out. We need you to, to squelch the rumors that you're saying the temple doesn't matter, Moses doesn't matter, and the tradition does we, we need you to do that. Paul says, listen. I can't take your traditions to Greece and Turkey and expect this to work, okay? But I get that while I'm here, I get that these people are zealous of that. How can I make this right? So they tell him, they say, well, you need to go through a seven-day temple cleansing. And if you go through a seven-day temple cleansing yourself, that'll give the word that you actually think it matters, right? So if you'll do that, that'll be fantastic. Paul says, you know what? I'll do that. So he goes through this seven-day temple cleansing. Now, you're caught up with the story. This is Acts 21 or so, somewhere around in there. This is... um, Oops. Here we go. This is what it says. When the seven days were almost completed, that's the seven days he agreed to do for his temple cleansing. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. This is not in a good way. This is they grabbed him. okay, Crying out, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. In other words, the Jews don't matter, Moses doesn't matter, the temple doesn't matter. This is the guy we've heard doing that. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. That This is well before people came to the understanding that God was for everyone everywhere. Back then, they still thought God was for Jews and not for anybody else, right? So, so they're still wrestling with all of that in, the, in their history, right? For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him to the temple. So they so evidently Paul had a Greek companion named Trophimus, and they just assumed that Paul led him into the temple. No one really knows, but that's what they're assuming. Then all the city was stirred up, so they get all the folks ticked off, right? And the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gate were shut. So in other words, somebody watched a mob bring Paul out of the temple, and they just went, and shut the door right who that was no one really knows i know in some, there are some jewish history books that it says that james and paul couldn't stand each other so bad that james in one of his writings said that paul was an apostate heretic who claimed to see our lord but never did there's this there's this one jewish history book that says paul and james got in a fist fight one time on the temple steps and paul clocked james and so anyway you don't know you don't know how much literalness is in all of that but there there was some tension between them and, and, and then all the city was stirred let's see next slide and 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 as they were seeking to kill him All right, so get the picture here mob of people Taking Paul out of the temple with the intent to do severe bodily harm to the point of death Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion Let me uh, let, let me let me translate that into modern English the chief of police um heard that there was confusion and the last thing they want on earth is for there to be a riot. You can't have a riot because it gets back to Caesar and there's a problem. So he at once took soldiers and the centurions and ran down to them, the police. All right. So the chief of police gets the entire police force that's on duty and they go to stop a mob from beating a guy. This, this is making sense. And when they saw the Tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, which I find really, like, so, so the police show up. There's a guy half dead there, and they're like, what happened? And the whole mob's going, we don't know. We found him like this. this they, they stop engaging in the violence. So here's what ends up happening. The police, for some reason, arrest the guy that was beaten, right? I, I, weird time to be alive. They arrest the half dead guy. So much so that he can't walk back to the police station. They have to carry him because of the severity of the beating. Now, watch, watch what happens. As Paul was about to be brought to the barracks, he says, this is Acts 21, uh, 27 to 38. I, I skip forward to about verse 36 or so. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Watch what the tribune says to Paul. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of secret assassins out into the wilderness? Have you ever had a rumor start about you that was just so ridiculous you can't believe people? Can, can, you imagine Paul. Hey, are you the Egyptian that started a secret revolt of 4,000 secret assassins? I could see Paul going, uh, no, right? Like, that, that, that wasn't me. Now, to understand this, we got to understand, let's keep the verse right there, and, and let me explain some quick history, okay? There was, there, there was twenty-four different messiahs in a 24 different messiahs in hundred and twenty-year period of time. So 24 different people claiming to be the one anointed of God to, to get Rome out of Israel and free Israel from the horrendousness of Rome. There was Simon Ben-Guar, there was Simon Barcopa, there was Menahem, there was, there was all these guys. Actually, the Barcopa following was bigger than the Jesus following until about 130 AD. The reason is, is because Barcopa was the one who actually succeeded in kicking Rome out of Israel, right? So he actually succeeded in it and, and got them out. And so they thought, well, this is the guy... Truly anointed of God to do this, right? And so, so you have all this. There was one, they all died horrendously. You could read the history on them on what the Roman Empire did to Simon Bengora, what they did to Menahem, what they did to Simon Barcopa, what they did to Jesus Christ. Terrible, terrible sort of thing. So there was one Messiah simply called the Egyptian. The reason is, is that guy, he, whoever he was, he figured out that whoever identifies themselves, they end up dying. So what he did is he started a messianic revolt called, and simply called himself the Egyptian. He's obviously dead today, but you don't know if Rome ever found him. And what he did was he fit in during the day. And then he hired 4,000 secret assassins called the Sicarii. They were the throat cutters. And what they would do, is they were fit in during the day, and then at night they'd come out dressed in all black, and they would cut people's throats. High-ranking government officials, corrupt priests people who were empowering the Roman occupation. They were essentially a terrorist organization who were the resistance of the poor against the Roman military occupation. And, and and what they would do is they would kill the person and then they would put their sign taking claim for the kill. They would put their signal like Zoro next to the dead body. And so the next morning when the sun came up, because there was no such thing as CSI Jerusalem, people would come out and go, oh, look, the Egyptian has done this Again, so think about this. Let me see if I could piece all three of these things together, right? If you're zealous Jews in Jerusalem and you can't cope with Paul, but Paul's too popular, how do you get Paul out of your hair? The same way you get Jesus out of your hair. How do you get Jesus out of your hair? He's too popular. You can't do anything. What do you do? You report him to Rome that he's claiming to be a king. He's claiming to be a rabble rouser. If you look back at the the, the trial of Jesus, what do they they accuse him of? He stirs up the people all over the region. He started in Galilee and he's made his way all the way here. It's not about blasphemy. It's not about any of that. As if Pilate cares about any of that. It's about not keeping the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. You can't do that. So how do you get rid of Jesus? You report him to Rome as a rabble rouser and Rome will take care of him. How do you get rid of Paul? Here's what you do. You tell the guy in charge that the Egyptian you've been looking for, we've heard it's that guy, right? So when they arrest Paul, he, they say, are you not the Egyptian who started a secret revolt of 4,000 secret assassins in the, into the wilderness? And if you keep reading the story, Paul goes, uh, no, and I know where this is going. I know what you did to Jesus. You just crucified him in a secret trial in the middle of the night. But you can't do that to me. Why? Because I'm a Roman citizen. And if I'm a Roman citizen... I get to be heard by an actual court. I don't, get, I don't get a junkie court in Caiaphas' back court. Uh-uh, no, no, no. I get a real court, a real court. So if, if you keep reading, if Caleb, you can go back. I'm not quite there yet, right? Thanks. If, so, so if you keep reading, right, here's what happens. He ends up in front of a guy named Felix, who was the Roman governor. Felix says, and I'm quoting now, I don't find any evidence that he is who you say he is. But as a favor to the Jews in Jerusalem, Felix keeps him in jail for two years. Now, that takes two, that takes two sentences to read that. But that's two years of a man's life, right? He's in jail because of corruption between the corrupt high priest and the Roman governor, right? So he's in jail for two years. Felix then gets replaced by a guy named Festus. Highly unfortunate name. Festus shows up and says... What are you doing here? They've accused you of being the Egyptian, but you're obviously not the Egyptian because the Egyptian is still operating and you're here, right? And Paul says, I know, it's this deal they made, right? right? And so Festus is gonna let him go, but Paul thinks Festus and the Jews are still in corrupt tandem. And so Paul says, Paul says, you know what? I know how this works. I'm utilizing my rights as a Roman citizen. I'm appealing to the highest court in Rome, I'm appealing to Caesar, right? And so Festus says, well, I was going to let you go, but since you appealed to Caesar, now you've got to go see Caesar. So the book of Acts ends with Paul being marched to Rome, and it ends with him under arrest and in prison in Rome, awaiting a trial in front of Caesar Nero. This is going to turn out terribly. Why? Because Nero is famous for killing who? Christians. Namely namely because... They believed in the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord, and anybody that claimed anybody was Lord other than Caesar would be killed. Nero had this custom he would do with Christians. He would take a wooden stake, and he would impale it into their rectum with the goal of going through both holes at once. If you're a masochist, you can look up Google images. There's artist renderings of this. He would then cover them in tar and set them on fire in order to keep his backyard alight. So, if you've ever thought, gee, the world's crazy to days please think again okay so so he he would he would do he would do this sort of thing can you see now why Paul wrote something like this in the book of Romans anyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved who do you write that to Rome is that sentence written anywhere else in the whole Bible No, why is that important? Well, who's in charge of Rome? Caesar people who live in Rome their entire living wage was based on the excessive taxation of other people based on their confession that Caesar is Lord and if you are in Rome and you say Jesus is Lord What's going to happen to you? You are going to get impaled and likely? killed this is what would have happened in rome do you see how later he says do you see that no one can possibly say jesus is lord unless the holy spirit compels them like we've dumbed that down into a magic prayer people pray after service in order to go to heaven when they die this was not Point. It was far more profound than that. It is, hey, are you willing to risk everything to change the world? It was that it was it was hey, hey, Caesar's claiming to be God. But if Caesar's God in flesh, then look at the results. Look at the fruit of this. This is turning out terribly. This is not going well at all if god actually came in flesh it would look like jesus and not caesar a guy that serves the poor lifts the lowly to the level of the elite he would eliminate the class systems there'd be no misogyny no racism there'd be none of that because christ is for all people because christ is the thing holding all people together could you imagine saying that in rome because if people actually believe that it would ruin the entire roman economy they're not going to have this this is paul's problem so paul to save his life ...is going to have to say Caesar is Lord instead of Jesus. And for him, that's not possible. Now, what does that mean? That means he's going to die. He's going to die quite horribly. It's going to be really, really bad. Paul is in jail. If you missed, if you tuned out on any of that, let me summarize it in a few sentences. Paul's in jail because people he took an offering for turned their back on him turned him into Rome on a false accusation of being, an, uh, being the Egyptian, a Messiah figure who started a secret revolt of 4,000 secret assassins in the wilderness. He's in jail because of one false accusation, you're the Egyptian, and one true accusation, Jesus is Lord. He won't come off the idea that Jesus is Lord and he is going to die. He's been betrayed. He started however many churches and only one showed up to feed him what would you feel like with that he's writing them back to thank him he's been turned on by jewish brothers and sisters who he took an offering for to bless before he got there simply because they disagreed with how he interpreted scripture oh my word aren't you glad we would never do that today aren't you glad we would never turn on a brother or sister because of a disagreement over a bible verse aren't you glad we're so far past that we would never do that isn't that good in that in that hmm So it's in that context that we read this. Go ahead and hit the next slide for me, Caleb. Thank you. Yes, and I will rejoice. First of all, not really my first response. Right? Like, I'm in prison. I'm I'm being tortured on a daily basis under the authority of Nero. I am absolutely going to die. I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ would be honored with my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die, well, that'll be better. Oh my goodness. I'm challenged by this, and and, and I want to open up this passage to us because I think this has done us and a lot of people a lot of damage. And that is the idea that great faith is having enough faith to get out of situations. It, it sounds certain. It sounds something like this: If you had enough faith, your children wouldn't be sick. If you just had enough faith, you could have shifted that marriage. If you just had enough faith, they wouldn't have left you. If you just had enough faith, you wouldn't have lost your job. If you just had enough faith, the business wouldn't have went under. Right? You must. You must have a faith. You you must have a faith problem. Oh, oh, you know what, if you just, if you just had, a, you, there, there must be something wrong with your faith because you got cancer. There must be something wrong with you. And, and that's not a new theology, that's a very old one. It's based in Latin, but the actual technical name is bulimus Crapamus. okay? And you, could, you, could ask, you could ask somebody about what the English translation of that is, but I, I can't think of it exactly. I just know the Latin is bulimus crapamus. And so the idea is, is that if you just had enough faith, You could get out of certain situations. Here's the problem with this. Look at the passage. This will turn out for my deliverance. And he doesn't immediately go, God's going to get me out of prison. I'm going to escape this. He just says, it is my eager expectation that I won't be ashamed when I go through this. It is my eager expectation that I will not be ashamed when I go through what I'm fixing to go through. That I'll do it with a certain countenance that honors Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance. Here's the thing. The phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, is a specific Hebrew phrase. Remember, Paul's a rabbi, right? He's memorized the entire Old Testament. He's using a specific phrase that was common in the wisdom literature. See, let let me see if I could, uh, uh, let me re-summarize this just simply because I I gave you a lot of information and I don't want you to get lost. Next slide. So Paul's in prison in Rome and seen as an enemy of the state due to one false accusation and one true one. The Philippians were the only church to reach out and send some, so someone to feed and resource Paul. Paul is awaiting a trial that will bring execution. But next slide. Paul lived in a day where the world believed Caesar is Lord. They ruled this way with military might. The evangelist of Caesar said, convert or we kill you. That, it's a highly effective way of doing it. Christians were social justice juggernauts who were standing against the empire and the lordship of Caesar. So that's where we are. Paul writes, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, where does that phrase come from? It is a direct quote from one of the wisdom poems. So the wisdom books is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentation. These are poems, sayings, plays that are about wisdom in life. The rabbis say this. That to truly have wisdom you have to read proverbs ecclesiastes and job as a trinitarian structure that proverbs tells you how the world should work if common sense is always at play right but proverbs are not promises they're proverbs okay so if you answer your enemy softly his anger will turn from you true or not true true Always no, it's not a promise. It's a proverb. Jesus answered his enemies softly and they killed him Okay, why? It's not because Jesus didn't have enough faith in the word. It's because sometimes people kill you, right? So proverbs tells you how the world should work Job shows you that even if you do proverbs correctly, sometimes stuff happens to you Right and that the absurd is a part of life Ecclesiastes shows us That even if we get it right the whole time, we're going to die, right? And if you ever lose sight of your own mortality, you're going to lose the joy of living today, right? And you have to live those three things. Now, Job is the poem, and it's a poem. Job is a poem. How do we know it's a poem? Because it's in the poetry section, okay? (laughs) The book of Job starts out with God and Satan making a bar bet on someone's life. This is a poem, okay? So Job is in this Job's in this situation and if you're not familiar with the poem of Job here's what happens there's a meeting in heaven and God is in a board meeting of his staff it's a poem God's in a board meeting of his staff and he's upholding Job as a righteous man the Ha Satan says the Satan the Satan says the accuser he goes I think He's only righteous because he gets the rewards of righteousness. I think he's living by Proverbs because everything's working well. But if everything didn't go well, he'd drop you like a bad habit, God. I bet he would, right? And God says, I bet he won't. And Satan says, I bet he would. And God says, I bet he won't. And Satan says, I bet he would. This is a pretty good summary of the book of Job. And so Satan says, give me an opportunity to prove it. And so God says, do whatever you want to him. You just can't kill him. So Satan takes everything, his health, his wealth, his family, everything. Everything gets taken from this guy. And of course, what happens when you're going through this? Experts start showing up to tell you why, right? This is what's happening with Job, is what happens in our life. You're going through something, and people think they have a nice, pithy sentence to summarize a very complex situation that you're going through, right? And we all love it when people do that to us, right? And so these three friends show up to Job and go, We think it's this. Uh, that doesn't work. We think it's that. He's like, they're like the worst friends ever. We think it could be this. We think it could be that. Hey, hey, what if it's this? What if it's that? And Job sort of just goes along with the nonsense for a while. And then around chapter 13 or so, they make a suggestion and Job arcs up. They say, it must have been something you did. Must have been. It must have been. You must have done something for God to judge you with the cancer. You must have done something for God to take your kids away. You must have done something for your wife to die. You must have done something for your fields not to produce. It must have been something you did. And Job arcs up. I mean, he's not having this. And Job says, hey, it ain't that. You guys can play around with whatever you want, but it ain't that. It is not something I did. I'll stand, I'll stand my ground there, right? Watch what he says. This is Job 13. Though he slay me, I'll hope in him. In other words, whether I live or die, that's God's call, above my pay grade, right? It's not my business. If God kills me, that is still his business, and I'll hope in him. Now that is a righteous person, right? Yet I would argue my ways to his face. In other words, if God kills me, that's his business. I'm sure he had a good reason, but it won't be because of something I did. That is not happening. I'll argue my ways to his face. This will be my deliverance, that the godless shall not Come before him. So the, so the Jewish phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, was not about having enough faith to get out of something. It was about keeping our hands clean, our heart pure, and our taste sweet, and our behavior right in the middle of the something. That great faith is not the absence of doubt. Great faith is the presence of profound trust in the middle of the problem. This will turn out for my deliverance was a quote from Job. It was Job's commitment to keep his way straight no matter how bad things got. So when Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance, the context is he's being tortured and he's going to die. And he's making a commitment to the Philippian church. I don't care how bad this gets, my ways will stay straight for you. If I die, and I'm gonna. I'll I'll be able to stand before God and a godless person will never have to be in the presence of God. This will turn out for my deliverance. That great faith is not the absence of doubt. Great faith is the presence of profound trust in the middle of a lack of certainty. The central cry of the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That even the Christ on the cross had profound doubt but exhibited profound trust in the middle of that horrendous situation. This will turn out for my deliverance. It's not about having enough faith to get out of something. This will turn out for my deliverance. It's about having a profound trust in the middle of that something. And that is what Paul is getting at in this passage. Now, there's another sense of it. This is a, a, this is a quote from the book of Samuel. This is, um, this is a story. Let's see if I could set this up. This is a story that is very famous. We've all learned it. Um, So David uh, is a a, a shepherd. Um, uh, He's the youngest of seven. Um, He gets anointed to be king. Uh, This doesn't sit well with people. He ends up up killing a giant uh, Philistine warrior. Um, He uh, gets very popular with everybody except for King Saul. I think I'm summarizing this decently. Um, Saul tries to... Saul tries to, to kill him by skewering him with a javelin. He even gets more popular. So when you're running from the king, you're running not just from the king, you're running from all the king's allies as well. Um, and what we find in the story is that David is sort of a bad dude. Um, when it comes to hand-to-hand combat, he is unbelievable. Lion, no problem. Bear, no problem. Giant Philistine warrior, bring it on. Jack D- D- David is like Jack Bauer on speed, okay? He is he's spe- he's Rambo. He is he is a hand-to-hand combat specialist. But when it comes to hiding, he's terrible, right? And so he keeps running into people that know him everywhere, right? He even goes to a cave once to hide from Saul and it says 400 people already knew where he was going and met him there. In other words, bro, as good as you are at hand-to-hand combat at hiding, Frankly, you suck, right? It, it, it's that. So David has an encounter with the king of Gath, who was an ally of Saul. His name was Achish. This is what it says. And, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another him and dances? And Saul struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now keep going. And David took these words to heart. Now All they've said is encouraging things, Right? David took these words to heart, and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spit run down his beard. It's an amazing amazing sort of picture of how to survive. I, I um, I have cousins that have been in prison more than they've been not in prison. Right, um, they're they're like the collect. Their their they're job is they collect for the crystal meth mob, right? They they're, they're just they're, yeah. Anyway, so um, so I was talking. to, They're all about six five, two hundred and forty pounds, right? And um, and and I I was talking to one on one time, and I said, Bo, I don't plan on getting arrested, but give me a cert- like if I got arrested, I don't. If I walked into jail, like I'm fragile, you know, like I'm a I, I, I'm, a, I'm a thinker, not a fighter, right? I said, how, how would I survive? Now he took me serious. He went, here's what you do, bro. He said, you walk in and you just look crazy. He said, and then look around and find the meanest looking one you can find. And he said, and don't say nothing, don't say hello, don't extend your hand, don't do anything. Walk right up to the meanest one you can find and just start beating him as hard. He said, just start. Even if you end up losing the fight, just walk right up and just start beating him. And then stand over him and, and spit. And, yeah, bring it on. He said, you'll get a reputation for being crazy if people leave you alone, right? <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, I'll just try not to get arrested. because that So that's what's going on here. That David, this genius songwriter, political king, had a fair good run with women, you know. He's he's finding himself slobbering on himself, scratching at the door, pretending to be insane because he's scared. Now, I I want you to notice that phrase, he changed his behavior. Let me show it to you in Hebrew. Next slide. The original Hebrew for his behavior is tamal, which everywhere else is translated taste. Or flavor. He, it, it, it literally says he, he acted in bad taste. Or he changed his taste. We use the same metaphor today. If I, if, if I do something that isn't necessarily wrong, but it's not appropriate for the context, you might say, Shane, that's not wrong, but that was in poor taste. That's what's going on here. So David runs. He runs from Achish and Saul to a cave where 400 people already know where he is. He realizes he's terrible at hiding. Now, when you've got five armies of the world chasing after you and your only hiding place is a place 400 people knew where you were going, (laughs) what do you do? Well, Evidently, you write a poem. Let me read you the poem David wrote from the cave. Keeping in mind, the poem happens a day after that scene. Here's what it says. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My my soul makes his boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from my situation. No, delivered me from my fear of the situation. That's two different things. Next slide. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his trouble. The the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So the word deliverance here is about not escaping the situation, but escaping the fear and the troublesome nature of it. It's, it's about a countenance in it. Watch the last sentence of his poem. Next slide. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The word is tamal. In other words, I'll never be put in a situation again where I have to act like that because of fear. So the phrase in Hebrew, this will turn out for my deliverance, is a commitment to keep our ways clean, our heart pure, and our taste sweet. So when a rabbi is using that phrase in prison, this will turn out for my deliverance. That's a commitment to, that's not, that's not, I have enough faith to get out of it. You can see now why his next sentence is, I have expectation that I will remain unashamed. My, my fear of this situation has left me. The situation hasn't, but my fear of it has. The troubling, the troubling nature of it has left me. I, I, I have. Um, this will turn out for. It's a commitment to do that. Now that's been 45 minutes. I hope that didn't feel like 45 minutes. Um, and so I hope the scripture started to come alive. Um, we're going to take a break now, and then we'll come back and, and I'll I'll complete that. I'll complete that talk. I did have two talks ready for this morning, but it looks like the history lesson went a bit long, and that's okay because I was I was more interested in in being interesting and complete than I was in flying through content, right? So, and I hope you appreciate that. So uh, during the break, there's gonna be refreshments as there always are. Um, The table there has videos and audios, right? USBs and direct downloads, all right? Um, 100% of what we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets women out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town Flats, okay? Um, Our orphanages in China are in Hinyang, which is a four-hour drive from a place called Wuhan, okay? So I don't think I need to explain the the, the dire nature of why we need to uh, continue to do what we could do I send teams three times a year into there um, and I've had to cancel that for this quarter because it's illegal and unwise so um, so I still but I can still send money so uh, for the people who are there on the ground in quarantine and making sure mentally handicapped children stay as safe as possible we need to do what we can do so um, that's out there so during the break I'll be there say hello I mean then we'll come back and um, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll finish up with, we'll, we'll continue with where we left off there. Since the last time I was here, there's, uh, there's three brand new ones. Um, uh, there's uh, one called Choose Freedom, one called Thinking Bigger, and then there's one I just finished last week. I decided to take on the book of Revelation um, because I had like 500 emails asking me to do it. So I did it. Um, it's a 12-part series. Uh, the first four um, are available today. Uh, the, the, the next eight um, are with the, it was completed last week, but it's with the editor still. So um, if you want the series, I can give you the first four today and I can take your email um, and send you the whole series once it becomes available. Could be as early as tomorrow, um, but it could be as much as a week. Alright, so uh, uh, come on out there and check that out. I'll let Pastor Darren give you some instructions on when to come back and where to go. Grace and peace, guys.
0: Let's give uh, Shine a hand.